We are grateful for the fact that your faithfulness is revealed in both the pleasure and in the pain of life. That there is not one particular season in which you are working, but you're working in all seasons, in all things, for our good, for your glory. Father, we confess that we don't often see our lives in this way. We're, we're too often, God, determined by our perspective on the circumstances around us, and we need the perspective of your word. We need uh, the lens of Scripture to give us a right view of both you and our lives in relationship with you. We pray that you do that this morning, that you would come and you would expose, Father, the unbiblical ways in which we think about our lives, and that you would give us, God, biblical expectations for how to know you, relate to you, and interpret our, wor- our life in this world. Father, we need the perspective of your word, and it is a massive evidence of grace that we have your word here before us, that we can read it and study it and consider it and hear it preached, Father, and receive it implanted in us, which is able to save our souls. We pray that you would give us ears of faith today and that you make our hearts soft. There are hard things in this passage, God. Give us soft hearts to hear them and to receive them. Pray that you keep me from error, Father. Pray that my words would be um, true to the text. Pray that they would be means of grace in the lives of your people, that they would be received, Father, as life-giving and not discouraging. We ask that you grant us discernment. We pray for your spirit to be at work among us. We pray, God, that you would do uh, a mighty thing now and that you would help us to believe what it is your word says. It's a miracle when any sinner believes the Bible So come and do that miracle among us. Now we pray for our good and for the glory of your Son's name. Amen. What do you expect your relationship with God to be like? What do you expect your relationship with God to be like? I'm not asking here about what you would like it to be or what you hope it might be someday. Those are questions about goals. I'm asking about something deeper, something that is often unexamined. I'm asking about your expectations. When you slow down and think honestly about your relationship to God, how do you expect it to work? In fact, let me give it a bit more focus. How do you expect God to respond to you and to your needs? For that matter, what do you consider to be your greatest need? And how do you expect God to meet it? Friends, it's our answer to those kinds of questions that determines how we interpret our relationship with God. We're all theologians. We're all constantly interpreting our lives in relationship to God at each moment of every day. Even the atheist who disregards God's existence is interpreting his life in relationship to God. And we tend to view things from the perspective of our expectations. Now on the one hand, this is a completely natural occurrence. No one comes into any relationship with a neutral mindset. Everybody comes in with expectations. That's true of your friendships, that's true of your marriage, and that's true of your relationship with God. It's a completely natural occurrence to have expectations. But on the other hand, there is a danger here as well, isn't there? The danger comes when our expectations are shaped less by Scripture and more by the world around us. And this happens more often than you might think. Let me give you an example. 
take the issue of prosperity. Prosperity. Compared to the rest of the world, believers here in Western culture are surrounded by affluence, ease, and luxury. Prosperity is not merely present, it is the very atmosphere in which we live and move and breathe. And if we're not careful, that sense of prosperity can reshape our expectation for relating to God. So we expect our Christianity to be marked by more ease than difficulty and more quote-unquote blessing than hardship. Do you see what has happened? Our expectation for relationship with God has been shaped not by the Bible, (laughs) but by this world, this culture, this prosperous, rich, affluent, indulgent Western culture in which we find ourselves. Now at this point, some of you might be thinking, Jeff, you've been gone five weeks and you're just pressing this a little bit too much. You're overstating this a bit. I mean, we don't believe something like the prosperity gospel. I know that's what you're getting at. We don't believe something like the prosperity gospel. We know better than that. To which I would answer, do we? Do we? You're right that in this church, by God's grace, we absolutely deny and oppose something like the prosperity gospel. It's no gospel at all. It's satanic. And it's leading people to hell. We rightly deny that. But even as we reject that teaching, do we recognize the other, way, the other ways, often subtle, in which our expectations have been shaped by that same idea? You could call it a low-grade prosperity gospel. Or maybe more accurately, a tit-for-tat gospel. If I'll give God what He wants, the thinking goes, then He'll give me what I want and the other way around. And I'm going to make us uncomfortable here. But we need to wrestle with this. We need to see the depth to which this goes. Do you think God is more likely to answer your prayer if you've spent time that day reading your Bible? That's a tit-for-tat gospel. Do you think God is less likely to provide what you need because you fell once again into that same old pattern of sin? That too is a tit-for-tat gospel. Do you consider life's hardships to be punishment from God for the ways you've disappointed Him? You see, it's low-grade prosperity, isn't it? In very subtle ways, our expectations end up being shaped not by Scripture, but by the culture and the world around us. And the consequences are disastrous. Armed with these unbiblical expectations, we then begin to misinterpret our life in the world. That's where bad theology comes from. Our faith, which should be growing, begins to flounder. And we start to ask questions like, is there something wrong with me? Maybe I'm not even a Christian. Or even more painful, we ask, has God forgotten me? If He cared about me, then I wouldn't be going through this hardship, right? Because it's supposed to be easy. Friends, I'll confess that I see myself in those questions much more than I care to admit. There are many days I relate to God as though the relationship were tit for tat. In fact, this is how deep I can go. There are times I'm convinced my sermon preparation will go badly because I have not kept up my end of the deal with God. I didn't pray enough. 
I didn't study enough. I didn't look at the original languages enough. Doesn't that sound awful? Let me tell you, it is awful. And maybe you can relate. Maybe it's not sermon preparation. Maybe it's your marriage or your kids or your career or your family or your health. Maybe you can relate. If so, I want to encourage you not to shrink back this morning. I know that there's a voice in your head saying, tune out, this hurts, don't listen. I want to encourage you not to shrink back this morning. Instead, I want to invite each of us to embark upon the only path forward. It's the path of humbly opening our lives before the Scriptures so that our expectations are both challenged and then changed. That's called grace, by the way. That our expectations are challenged and then changed. And that's where our passage comes in. Here in Hebrews chapter 12, the author confronts the misguided expectations of his readers. You'll remember the recipients of this letter were enduring great difficulty. They were being persecuted. Some had even been thrown into prison. But here in chapter 12, it seems the main struggle has to do with their expectations. When you read this passage, they seem to be caught off guard by the hardship because they expected the Christian life to be, well, easier. (laughs) They seem caught off guard. And that's why the author writes this section of verses. The aim of this passage is correction for the sake of encouragement. It's correction for the sake of encouragement. The author seeks to give us the right way, the biblical way, to think about our relationship with God. He corrects our expectations. And the correction focuses on one specific aspect of God's character. His fatherly discipline. His fatherly discipline. You'll hear it when we read the text in a moment. Nine times the author mentions discipline in the span of nine verses. Nine times he mentions discipline. And that repetition should get our attention. This is one of the more vital truths for rightly relating to God in the world. To understand our lives in this world, we must have our expectations shaped by this truth. We must see God as He is. A Heavenly Father who disciplines His children. Now before we go any further into the text, I want to pause here for just a moment and say something to a specific group of people. There are some people here who did not have a good earthly father. Or maybe you didn't have a father present at all. And we're going to talk a lot about God as father in this text. And there's some of you here who didn't have a good earthly father, or maybe you didn't have a father present at all. And that makes this talk of God as Father somewhat painful. If that's you this morning, can I say just two things to you that I pray will help you listen here at the outset? First of all, I'm sorry for the pain that you carry with you even to this day. I won't pretend to understand how painful it is but I will remind you that you have a church family that wants to bear your burdens with you. That's the first thing. The second thing I would say is that I would remind you that the father we're talking about today is not a weak, frail, or absentee man. The father we are talking about is the God of the universe. 
He is perfect and faithful and good and righteous and true. He never breaks a promise. He never skips town. He never hurts those He's supposed to care for. When things are hard, He presses in rather than pulls away. He's that kind of Father. So as you listen this morning, let me encourage you. Let me encourage you to take this step of faith. This is a profound step of faith. I know it is, but I'm going to ask you to do it anyway. Allow the inadequacies of your earthly father to be the backdrop on which the splendor of your heavenly father shines most brightly. You see, that's how we glorify God with our pain. That's how sorrow deepens our worship. When we take the pain and the sorrow and we use them as the means of magnifying what God is like. So for those of you who's passed in connection with fatherhood is painful, I pray those comments would help you this morning as you listen. So with that, let's turn our attention now to the text. You can follow along with me as we read. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church through His inspired author beginning in verse 3. Consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves, and He chastises every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Amen. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. May God now give us grace to hear it with faith. I want to draw your attention to three truths from this text, or we could call them three corrections. Three corrections. Instead of living with unbiblical expectations, we should consider our lives in light of these these three truths. The first is found in verses 3 to 4. We must consider our lives in light of God's Son. Consider our lives in light of God's Son. You'll notice the author highlighted the Lord Jesus in verse 2, the preceding verse. It's Jesus' life that concludes the great hall of faith. We run with endurance by looking to Jesus, following His example and resting in His work. Here in verse 3, that emphasis on Christ continues. Notice what the author says once more. Verse 3, Consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. You can hear the author's concern for perseverance in the verse. He doesn't want us to grow weary with exhaustion and quit the race. He wants us to keep running. So he tells us again to consider Jesus. Specifically, he says we should consider Jesus' endurance. Have you done that recently? 
Have you considered just how much the Lord Jesus endured on earth? Our minds quickly jump to the cross as the supreme example of His endurance. But in truth, Jesus' entire life required perseverance. His own family misunderstood Him. They thought He was crazy. The religious leaders persecuted Him. They spread rumors about Him. They painted Him as a troublemaker, a rabble-rouser, even a lawbreaker. And when they could not succeed in destroying His public reputation, they handed Him over to the enemy, to the Romans. And they killed Him. Not humanely either, but gruesomely. Beating, scourging, mocking, and then hanging Him on a tree like a cursed criminal so that people could hurl insults at Him as they walked by. That's endurance, friends. That's endurance. And the author of Hebrews says we must consider Jesus' example. Don't just breeze past it. Don't just think to yourself, well, He's God, so it wasn't that hard. He endured. Consider His endurance. Consider it. Now the question is, why? Why should we consider Jesus' example? Or let me put it a different way. How does considering Jesus' example help my running? Clearly from the end of verse 3, perseverance is the goal. So that you might not grow weary or faint-hearted. In other words, keep running. So, how does considering Jesus' endurance help us keep going? Well, the answer has to do with expectations. This is one of the key applications of the passage. It is the life of Christ that should set the expectation for Christ's people. Let me say that again. It's the life of Christ that should set the expectation for Christ's people. The course of His race shows us what our race is going to look like. It's true. Jesus is the Son of God, beloved by the Father with an eternal love. He is the Son who was destined to rule and reign from the throne of the universe. He is the Son who was ordained to receive the worship of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. That's who we're considering. Not a mere man, not a good religious teacher. We're considering the Son of God. And yet, and th this is key, this is key, and yet, how did the Son of God attain His throne? Not through a life of ease, but through the endurance of suffering. How did the Son purchase the worship of the nations that He will receive for all eternity? How did He get it? Not by coasting through His race, but by running to the end, even to shedding His own blood on the cross. So, friends, why would we expect any different as His followers? You see, Jesus' endurance resets our expectations. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and do what? Follow me, Jesus says. That means run in the same course that I ran. In God's wisdom, the path to glory is paved with hardship, which means it is traveled only by perseverance. Do you see how this changes our perspective on life in this world? When the trials come, and they certainly will, we must not conclude God has abandoned us. That's a conclusion based on the wrong expectation. Instead, we must learn from Jesus. We must consider His life and consider His race. We must learn to see the hand of a sovereign God at work in the hardship. We must consider our lives in light of God's Son. What did Jesus endure? Hostility. How did He run with perseverance? So then what are we going to get? The same. Run like He ran. For the joy that was set before Him, Jesus endured the cross and is seated at the right hand of God. 
Therefore, let us have this joy set before us as well. It is the joy of heaven that comes only through perseverance. The author keeps going. And in verse 4, he gives us a mild rebuke. I'm sure you heard it when we read. He gives us a rebuke. While Jesus' life resets our expectations, we must also remember His endurance was ultimate. Look what the author writes, verse 4. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. The struggle against sin refers here to both sinful temptation from within us and sinful actions done against us. It's both. And in both cases, we have not yet resisted to the point of shedding our blood. In other words, we have not paid as great a price as the Lord Jesus. He endured sinful hostility even though He was innocent. And He endured until they killed Him for it. How's that on your return for godliness? Death. His endurance was ultimate. Now again, the question is, how does that help me run? How does that rebuke help me run? Again, the goal of this passage is our perseverance. So how does this help us? Well, I think an illustration can help. Think about the American soldiers who hit the beaches of Normandy during World War II. When I graduated high school, I went to see it because I wanted to see it. I was compelled. I just seen Saving Private Ryan and read Stephen Ambrose's book, and so I wanted to see the beaches. I wanted, what was it like? So I went with my parents. Think about the American soldiers who stormed the beaches of Normandy in World War II. When the doors on those transport ships dropped, the soldiers faced a daunting task. They had to wade through 100 yards of open water and then run 200 yards across an open beach, all while under heavy fire. So, 300 yards to find the relative safety of cover under the seawall. That's a long way to run with bullets flying. Now, do you think they ran hard? Or do you think they meandered slowly across the sand admiring the views of northern France? Well, they ran hard. Why? Because the stakes were very clearly life or death. Right? The stakes were very clearly run and live or stay here and die. And that's something of what the author is doing here in verse 4. Jesus' ultimate endurance reminds us of the stakes. Perseverance is not a spiritual hobby we can take up as we feel like it. It's life and death. It's life and death. You see, the author knows the natural tendency of our hearts is to drift away from the faith. He knows we're prone to be sluggish. We're prone to be dull of hearing. Our flesh will latch on to any excuse to quit. So to combat that tendency, he hits us with this rebuke. It's a wake-up call, in other words. An alarming reminder of what's at stake. There is no coasting into heaven. And that, friends, should spur us on to run like Jesus ran all the way to the end. Are you coasting, brothers and sisters? Are you coasting? Have you begun to grow weary in perseverance? Has the energy of discipleship been drained by weeks or months of hardship? Then hear the clear teaching of God's Word in verse 4. The stakes are high. Jesus' life reminds us how high the stakes are. The stakes are high, so keep 
running. Consider Jesus. Look to His life and be reminded of that the race of faith is no small thing. It is costly, but it is worth it. To rightly relate to God, we must consider our lives in light of God's Son. That brings us now to the second correction. This time from verses 5 through 8. We must consider our lives in light of God's character. We must consider our lives in light of God's character. Here the author brings Scripture to bear on us. God reveals Himself in His Word, and therefore it's on the basis of that Word, and only that Word, that we must relate to Him. That's what the author is burdened to accomplish in these verses. He wants to remind us what God is like, so that we'll relate to Him on the basis of that revelation. You see, he knows his readers have forgotten the biblical teaching. Verse, four, verse 5 is written like a rhetorical question, but the answer is, yeah, you did forget, right? You, you have forgotten. And so he aims to correct them from the Scriptures. And let me say, friends, this is a powerful and compelling correction. The time we invest now to understand these verses brings a considerable return. So let's take our time here and dig into this Second point, I want to take us step by step through the author's process, through his thinking. It begins in verses 5 to 6 where he gives us the meaning of God's discipline. Notice what he writes. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. That passage comes from Proverbs 3. And it gives us the right way to think about God's discipline. Discipline is not punishment. Let me say it again. Discipline is not punishment. In fact, it's just the opposite. God disciplines those whom He loves. Friends, is that how you think of God's discipline in your life? When He corrects you or exposes your sin, do you stop and think to yourself, this means God loves me. This means He's doing this because, because He cares for me. Because He loves me. I don't think we can hear this enough. God does not punish His children with suffering. God does not punish His children with trials or with hardship or with difficulty. Everything He does in our lives, including the discipline, including the trials, everything He does is a sign of His love. Everything. I am convicted here that I think far too little of God. I am so quick to assume He is angry. I am so quick to conclude He is punishing me. In short, I'm quick to assume that He's a lot like me. Do you know why this is? Because I don't understand the Gospel deeply enough. My mind is still conformed to the pattern of this world. I need to be transformed by God's Word, by the renewing of my mind, so that I think rightly about our Heavenly Father if you belong to God through Christ, then everything He does in your life is a sign of His love, including His discipline. Let that truth reshape your expectation for relating to God. Next, look at verse 8. We're going we're gonna to skip verse 7 for a second. Come back, look at verse 8. Here the author shows us the necessity of God's discipline. His point is straightforward. Notice what he writes. If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. 
as if the comfort of the gospel wasn't deep enough already. Here it goes just a little bit deeper. Not only is God's discipline a sign of His love, it is also a sign of our sonship. When we endure God's fatherly discipline, it doesn't mean He has abandoned us. Again, it's just the opposite. It means He claims us as His own. He claims us as His own. He says, yeah, those are my children. Those belong to me. We belong to Him and He intends to give us all the rights and all the privileges of heirs in His family. If He didn't discipline us, it means we don't belong to Him. That's the point of verse 8. His discipline is necessary and it is a sign of our sonship. Okay, now we're ready for the climax. The author has shown us the meaning and the necessity of God's discipline. It all comes together in verse 7, which I take to be the high point of the passage. It's right in the middle because I think it's the thing that both sides of the text are driving to. Verse 7 is the pinnacle. It's awesome how wonderful and rich this verse should be to our souls. Notice what he writes. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. If you've ever wondered why the Christian life requires perseverance, this is the Bible's answer. It is the outworking of God's loving discipline. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not trying to minimize the difficulty of life's hardships. We're going to see from verse 11 here in a few minutes that the Bible is also very realistic. I'm not trying to minimize the difficulty of life's hardship. Trials are painful. Sanctification is hard. If anyone ever tells you that sanctification is easy, they are lying to you. It's hard. There are effects of sin, both in ourselves and in the world, that we are right to mourn over. So I'm not trying to minimize the pain and the sorrow of life in a fallen world. What I am saying is that none of those things are meaningless. None of them are meaningless. None of those things is a punishment from God. In all things, whether pleasure or pain, God is treating us as sons. In all things, whether pleasure or pain, God is treating us as sons. Brothers and sisters, do you feel the weight of that wonderful statement? He is treating us as sons, not rebels, not worthless, not servants, but sons. That's some sweet gospel medicine for the soul right there. God is treating you as sons. He doesn't waste anything in your life. As a loving Father, He uses all things for your good to teach you and shape you according to His wisdom. And this is why we must persevere in the faith even when the running is hard. So look at verse 7. It is for discipline you have to endure. You could also probably translate that as endure for the sake of discipline. It's the reason why you should keep running. Because it means God is working. It's during those hard seasons that God's discipline is working in our lives. We must recognize there are some aspects of God's work in us that can only be produced through pain and suffering. Let me say that again. This is one of those expectations you got to get challenged by the Scripture from and be corrected. There are some aspects of God's work in us that can only be produced through pain and suffering. How is a diamond produced? Through pressure. How is gold refined? Through fire. In the same way, 
Godliness is formed through the pressure of perseverance. And holiness is fired in the heat of hardship. I know this is a challenging truth. I know that this redoes the way that we think about our Christianity. Discipline is not easy, but it is for our good. God is treating us as sons. So let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, the next time you experience God's correction, run quickly to the teaching of God's Word in Hebrews 12. The next time He exposes your sin, maybe even publicly, through the rebuke of a brother or sister, thank Him. Thank Him. He's working for your good. The next time He corrects you or allows hardship to refine you, thank Him. Run to the Scriptures and remind yourself, God is not punishing me. He loves me. And though this is painful and it hurts, God is treating me as His own Son. Our Father is the all-wise King of Heaven. He doesn't waste anything. He uses all things, whether pleasure or pain, to treat us as His children. To rightly relate to God, we must consider our lives in light of His character and not our perspective from the world. That brings us to the final correction. We must consider our lives in light of God's purpose. Consider our lives in light of God's purpose. In light of His Son, in light of His character, now in light of God's purpose. Look at verses 9 and 10. The author makes an argument from the lesser to the greater. And he does so with an analogy of earthly fathers. Notice what he writes. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good. Here the the author anticipates an objection. Or better yet, we could say he anticipates some grumbling. The author knows that we're like the Old Testament Israelites. You do know when you read the Old Testament, that's who we are, right? We're the grumbling people in the wilderness. We're supposed to read it from that perspective. We're not the winners. We're the losers. He knows to expect some grumbling. He knows we're prone to grumble, maybe even question what God is doing. I am ashamed how often I catch myself wandering in the wilderness of this world, complaining that life was better back in Egypt. I have so much hard-heartedness lingering in my soul. The author knows this. So he anticipates my grumbling and he answers it with this analogy. Our earthly fathers disciplined us and we respected them. How much more then should we submit ourselves to God, our heavenly Father? The answer is much more. Much more. The endurance of God's discipline is not a reason to grumble, but a reason to bow before God in humble submission. And what's more, God's discipline is for a better purpose. Earthly fathers discipline us for a short time according to their limited wisdom, but God is not like that. He disciplines us how? For our good. Again, He doesn't waste anything. His purposes are always good. But that's not all. Note the end of the verse. How the author defines our good. This this is really helpful to me. Note how the author defines what is good for us. That we may share His holiness. 
Here the fatherly heart of God comes into full display. He disciplines us so that we, His sons, might be like Him, our Father. You see, His discipline is a means of grace. He knows what is best for us, and what is best is that we share His character. This is the takeaway for us, brothers and sisters. We experience life at its best when we display God's character most. We experience life at its best when we display God's character most. More than comfort, more than prosperity, more than ease, what we need is the character of God fired upon our souls so that we look and live and love like Him. As a loving Father, this is what God does. He gives us what is best. He gives us Himself. Then in verse 11, the author gives us a few final clarifications to conclude his correction. There's three clarifications, actually. So let's note each one together, just briefly. First of all, the author reminds us God's discipline is not easy. Notice the opening words of verse 11. For the moment... All discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. How kind of God to tell us the truth. Christianity is not some bill of goods. It's not a bait and switch. He's telling you the truth. In the moment, it's going to be hard. It seems painful rather than pleasant. Again, this helps us understand our experience. When, when things become difficult in your life, it does not mean God has abandoned you. It means He is working. For the moment, it all seems painful rather than pleasant. Next, the author reminds us God's purpose takes time. So God's discipline is not easy. Then he reminds us God's purpose takes time. Notice the next phrase. So much wisdom in the Bible. Look at the next phrase. But later, later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. When does the fruit come? Not now, but later. We're far too addicted to the immediate. We want everything and we want it now, but God works slowly. Could he work immediately? Well, yes. Why doesn't he? Because he's God and he can do what he wants. He works slowly. In the Gospel of Mark, when Jesus is trying to explain to his disciples how the kingdom of God works, he says it's like a seed that you sow in the ground and it grows and you don't know how and it takes a long time and then it gets big. He works slowly. Say it to yourself. He works slowly. Again, think of how a diamond is formed. It's under pressure for centuries, but the end result is priceless. God works the same way. The payoff is later. What's more, notice those words yield and fruit. Those are agricultural terms. And they perfectly describe the process of God's work in our lives. He is the master farmer. And our hearts are His field. He has sown the good seed of the gospel, and now He's pulling the weeds of indwelling sin until our lives bear His resemblance. This is a good work, friends. This is a good work. But it takes time. Finally, the author reminds us God's purpose takes effort. It's not easy. It takes time, and it takes effort. Notice the last line of verse 11. To those who have been trained by it. The imagery switches. Now it's not farming, but athletics. The key is that word trained. God works in our lives and we work as well. Now to be sure, He initiates that work and He will be the one to finish that work. But along the way, His grace is empowering us to work as well. He is strengthening us, training us to run with perseverance. You've got to be trained by it. 
So overall then, we could summarize verse 11 like this. Live with a long-term mindset. Live with a long-term mindset. That's the right expectation for our relationship with God. Take the long-range view. Immediate is the enemy of godliness. God is always working, but His work is usually slow in coming. Therefore, our responsibility is to remember His Word and keep running. Keep running. There's not a requirement on pace or distance. The requirement is perseverance. Keep running all the way to the end. To rightly relate to God, we must consider our lives in light of His purpose. So I'll ask it again. What do you expect your relationship with God to be like? I don't know how you answered that question at the outset of the sermon. But I pray your answer here at the end has been shaped by God's Word. We must consider God's Son, whose endurance to the end calls us to keep running. We must consider God's character, the character of a father who faithfully disciplines those whom he loves. And we must consider God's purpose, which is always and in everything for our good in Christ. Our Heavenly Father does not waste anything. In all things, whether pleasure or pain, He is treating us as sons. May we rejoice in that gospel truth. And may that truth shape the way we understand our lives as God's people in this world. Amen. Let's pray.